Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Selden Society Lecture Series podcast. I'm David Bratchford, Supreme Court Librarian. I'm also the Honorary Secretary and Treasurer of the Selden Society in Australia, which is administered by the Supreme Court Library Queensland. In this new podcast series, we will offer engaging public lectures delivered by leading legal professionals, academics and judicial officers. The lecture you're about to hear is entitled Guns and Judges, Antonin Scalia and the Right to Bear Arms. Antonin Scalia was a prominent and controversial member of the Supreme Court of the United States, and this month marks the anniversary of his unexpected death in 2016. The lecture is presented by the Honourable Justice Glenn Martin, Judge of the Supreme Court of Queensland. The lecture was part of our 2018 lecture series. To find out more about the Selden Society, to become a member or view details of our upcoming lectures, visit the Supreme Court Library Queensland website. A link's provided in the podcast notes. I hope you enjoy the lecture. On the 4th of April 1939, Jack Miller's dead body was found on the bank of Little Spencer Creek in northeastern Oklahoma. He had been shot four times with a 38. The 45 automatic found near his body had been discharged three times. Miller was a thug. Born in about 1900, he was in trouble from an early age. Engaging mostly in petty crimes until about 1934 when he joined the O'Malley Gang. The Depression was the golden age of Midwestern bank robberies, and the O'Malley Gang committed many of them. They robbed banks in Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, and Illinois. Miller was usually a backup driver, but he lacked discipline and got himself into trouble by engaging in some freelance robberies. The O'Malleys had been pursued by the FBI and the Oklahoma State Police for some time but their spree was coming to an end. And on 3rd May, 1935, they hit the City National Bank of Fort Smith, Arkansas and stole about $22,000. It was to be their last big robbery. In Brian Fry's account of this, he describes the capture of the gang in a sort of Dashiell Hammett style. The police arrested Cooper as a likely suspect and struck gold. Cooper ratted out Gilmore, who was already on the lam. Gilmore sang too, fingering the rest of the gang. The police pinched O'Malley and Hetty in Kansas City, where they'd rented a swanky pad, and so on. Miller was also picked up, but he didn't observe the twisted honour of criminal gangs. He quickly confessed to his role and offered to give evidence for the state. At the trial, he identified the defendants as co-conspirators and detailed their involvement in the robbery. Perhaps it was his decision to give that evidence that led to his death. But why am I telling you about this man, someone who might at best write a footnote in the history of the criminal gangs of Midwest America? Let me explain. About 12 months before he died, Arkansas and Oklahoma State Police stopped Miller and his companion, Frank Layton, outside Siloam Springs in Arkansas. They had an unregistered short-barrel shotgun in the car and the police believed that they were making preparations for an armed robbery. 
They arrested Miller and Leighton and charged them with violating the National Firearms Act of 1934. Among other things, that act prohibited the registration of concealable firearms and prohibited interstate transportation of those firearms. Both Miller and Leighton pleaded guilty when the indictment against them was first presented. They appeared before a federal judge with the quintessentially American name of Hartzell Ragon. Judge Ragon had been a prominent member of and congressman for the Democratic Party. While in Congress, he was an advocate of federal gun control and had introduced a bill prohibiting the importation of guns in violation of state law. He suggested that Miller and Leighton withdraw their plea and arranged for a lawyer to represent them. The hearing was brief. Judge Reagan's decision even briefer. He may not have been completely faithful to his judicial oath in the manner in which he dealt with this case. Some argue that he engineered proceedings so that the validity of the National Firearms Act could be confirmed. His decision consisted of three short paragraphs. In the first, he recited the charge. In the second, he recited the elements of the argument asserting contravention of the Second Amendment. And in the third, he said, without any further reasoning, that he was of opinion that the statute was invalid in that it violated the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was proposed by James Madison as one of a series of amendments which were adopted in 1791 and became known as the Bill of Rights. It is brief, but its meaning is not immediately clear, and I will return to it. The unusual nature of the case against Miller did not end there. The United States appealed directly to the Supreme Court. Mr. Guttenson, the lawyer who had been appointed by Judge Reagan to appear for Miller on a pro bono basis, did not take part in the appeal to the Supreme Court. The clerk of the Supreme Court wrote to him, suggesting that he could submit a typewritten brief, or, if that did not suit, the hearing could be adjourned so that he could appear. Mr. Guttenson replied by telegram, suggest case be submitted on appellant's brief, stop. Unable to obtain any money from clients to be present and argue case. Stop. Paul E. Goodenson. The case came before the Supreme Court on the 30th of March 1939 with only the appellant appearing and no submissions from the respondent. The decision was given about six weeks later. It was unanimous. It was written by a judge who was known for at least two things. He was one of the laziest lawyers ever appointed to the court and he was probably the worst human being ever appointed to the court. <laughs> James Clark McReynolds had been a short-lived Attorney General in the administration of President Wilson. His appointment to the court in 1914 relieved Wilson of a cantankerous presence in his cabinet, but thrust it upon the United States Supreme Court. McReynolds routinely ranks among the least effective or worst judges in the court's history. He was possessed of a wide range of biases and prejudices. He was a racist, a sexist and an anti-Semite. During the welcome ceremony for Benjamin Cardozo to the court in 1932, McReynolds joined the bench but opened a newspaper and appeared to be reading it, while at the same time muttering audibly another one. He would not employ people who smoked or drank alcohol or were Jewish. He would not employ a woman. 
and he would not employ a man who was either married or engaged. He thought men who wore wristwatches or red ties were effeminate. In 1938, when Charles Hamilton Houston, a man acknowledged by many as a brilliant lawyer, appeared in the Supreme Court, McReynolds turned his back on him and stared at the back wall of the courtroom. Charles Hamilton Houston was black. The only member of the court to whom McReynolds would defer was the Chief Justice, Charles Evans Hughes. As you've noticed, everyone has a triple-barreled name. Robert Jackson, who was later appointed to the court, described him as a man who looks like God and talks like God. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a man who had been a member of a state militia and had fought in the Civil War, had a more forgiving view of McReynolds than most. But one of Holmes's correspondents, Harold Lasky, the British political theorist and economist, was not so generous. Holmes and Lasky corresponded with each other for nearly 20 years and their collected letters filled two volumes. In one letter to Holmes, Lasky said... McReynolds and the theory of a beneficent deity are quite incompatible. (laughs) Mr Justice McReynolds was given the responsibility of writing the opinion for the court. His decision, while longer than that of Judge Reagan, is not convincingly argued. It consists of a series of quotations from many sources, including Blackstone and Adam Smith. Early in the opinion, he says... In the absence of any evidence tending to show that possession or use of a shotgun having a barrel of less than 18 inches in length at this time has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. He then refers to the Constitution's provisions relating to the ability of Congress to call forth a militia and to grant significant powers with respect to it, and says, with obvious purpose to assure the continuation and render possible the effectiveness of such forces, the declaration and guarantee of the Second Amendment were made. It must be interpreted and applied with that end in view. This was followed by a brief and selective examination of the history of some of the provisions in earlier statutes about the possession of arms, After a few pages, that comes to an abrupt halt with the stark and unreasoned conclusion we are unable to accept the conclusion of the court below and the challenge to judgment must be reversed. As I say, it was a poorly constructed opinion, but judges of the eminence of Charles Evans Hughes, Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter agreed with him. Perhaps the members of the court did nothing more than apply what was then the well-accepted view of the Second Amendment. It was to remain unchallenged for the next seven decades. Antonin Gregory Scalia was three years old when Miller was decided. He was born in March 1936 to Salvatore, who had emigrated from Sicily in 1920, and Catherine, a first-generation Italian-American. Salvatore and Catherine came from large families. Together, in their generation, there were nine siblings. But of them, only Salvatore and Catherine had a child, and they had but one. Antonin was named after his grandfather, but was soon to become and remain known by the diminutive Nino. 
As an only child and with childless uncles and aunts, he did not want for attention. I need at this point to compress his biography into a few sentences. There is more in the written paper. He was an excellent student and had great success at Harvard, not least meeting and then marrying Maureen in 1960. They had nine children. After Harvard, he worked in a Cleveland law firm for six years before becoming a professor at the University of Virginia. In 1971, he commenced working in various government positions during the Nixon and Ford administrations. He returned to teaching during the Carter presidency and, while at the University of Chicago, became one of the first faculty advisors of the Federalist Society. In 1982, President Reagan appointed him to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, a court widely viewed as a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. And that proved to be so when, four years later, he was appointed by President Reagan to that court. His appointment was confirmed by the Senate by a vote of 98 to nil. But one should not draw from that that his appointment was viewed by all members of the Senate with equanimity. There is much to support the thought that the senators were simply exhausted after the bruising confirmation battle over the appointment of William Rehnquist as Chief Justice. In 1993, at the confirmation hearing for Justice Ginsburg, Senator Biden, later to be Vice President, but then Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said, the vote that I most regret of all 15,000 votes I have cast as a senator was to confirm Judge Scalia because he was so effective. Of his time on the court, Scalia, uh, sorry, of his time on the court, the constitutional cases in which he wrote the majority opinion stand out against a background of grudging concurrences and volcanic dissents. He voted with the majority in 75% of the cases decided by the court between 1986 and 2014. He wrote 270 majority opinions and 324 concurrences. But in any article or book about Justice Scalia, you will most often find references to his dissenting opinions, not because he always dissented, but because of the way he expressed his dissent. Now, there are two broad matters which must be kept in mind when considering what he wrote and the way he wrote it. First is the way majorities are constructed on that court. Secondly, there is the theory of constitutional interpretation which he promoted originally. It is obvious that in order to form a majority on that court, five judges must agree on the result. Simple maths. In all the time he was on the court, there was one member who was regarded generally as the swing vote. In many constitutional cases, there would be four conservative judges on one side and four liberal judges on the other. It was the swing vote which would decide the case. When Scalia was appointed, he replaced William Rehnquist as an associate justice because Rehnquist had been appointed Chief Justice to replace Warren Burger. The swing vote then was Sandra Day O'Connor. Upon her retirement, that role was assumed by Anthony Kennedy. 
be the swing voter on the Supreme Court affords considerable power and, one might think, would lead to careful and respectful arguments designed to win that judge over. Justice Scalia may have made careful arguments, but he certainly didn't do it respectfully. Now, we all know that occasionally in an appeal court, disagreements bubble to the surface and there is direct reference to and contradiction of another judge's reasons. The dueling decisions of Justices McHugh and Kirby in Al-Khateb and Godwin provide a rare example of that type of conduct in this country. Sometimes a judge will be satisfied with a short dyspeptic diatribe, as when Mr Justice Stark of the High Court started a judgment with this tart observation. This is an appeal which was argued by this court over nine days with some occasional assistance from counsel. <laughs> some judges are wont to express themselves in language which is more colourful than the norm and Justice Scalia was one of them. Selected parts of his opinions are often quoted as examples of his use of language and sense of humour. But the humour often had a harsh and sometimes bitter tone. Some of what he said can be enjoyed as a guilty pleasure. And from this distance, the schadenfreude may have a more innocent flavour. But sometimes, his comments about the considered opinions of his colleagues were both irresponsible and demeaning. His descriptions of other judges' decisions include nothing short of ludicrous, beyond the absurd, entirely irrational, not passing the most gullible scrutiny, nothing short of preposterous, has no foundation in American constitutional law and barely pretends to, so unsupported in reason and so absurd in application as unlikely to survive. Those are selfish ways to express disagreement. In a speech he gave in 1994, he said this, It's always more fun to write dissents if we are talking about just sheer fun because you just write for yourself. You know you can be as, as outrageous as you like because you don't care if anybody joins you or not. His dissents and the footnote wars he waged were not designed to cajole his colleagues into accepting his views. He didn't care. He was driven to be right rather than influential. And his excoriating disagreements with the two swing judges exemplify that. In Webster and Reproductive Health Services, Scalia saw an opportunity to overturn the famous abortion rights decision in Roe v. Wade. It did not happen. And Scalia unleashed his verbal weapons against Sandra Day O'Connor, saying that her reasoning could not be taken seriously and was irrational. He maintained his attacks on her to such an extent that on one occasion, after reading a draft Scalia dissent attacking O'Connor, Chief Justice Rehnquist called Scalia to admonish him. Nino, you are pissing off Sandra again, stop it, he said. <laughs> His criticism of Justice Kennedy was no less severe. In Obergefell and Hodges, the same-sex marriage case, he said this of Justice Kennedy's majority opinion. 
If, even as the price to be paid for a fifth vote, I ever joined an opinion for the court that began, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity, I would hide my head in a bag. (laughs) The Supreme Court of the United States has descended from the disciplined legal reasoning of John Marshall and Joseph Story to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. I agree. Beautifully written. But can you imagine being on the other side and being on the same court? His writing is sharp. It arrests the attention. But in his attacks, and what was nearly always the majority, he undermined the standing of the court of which he was a member. His criticism was sometimes ad hominem, but of greater concern were his assertions that the majority was usurping legislative power. In Obergefell, he said that the majority opinion was a naked judicial claim to legislative, indeed super-legislative power, a claim fundamentally at odds with our system of government. Constitutional scholar Richard Hayson has argued this. It is impossible to say whether Scalia's coarsening rhetoric contributed to the decline in the public's opinion of the court, but it certainly could not have helped. His constant claims that the majority's decisions were illegitimate and not even true acts of judging served as a model for populist denunciations of elitist court decisions. He had, at a time when the profession was increasingly concerned about civility among lawyers, set exactly the wrong example. The fury with which he often wrote was generated to a large extent by his unswerving belief that there was only one way to interpret the Constitution. I bring you back to his general theory of construction, originalism. But before I go to that, let me make two preliminary points. First, there is in the United States a degree of reverence for the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, which is not present or even easily understood in this country. The wisdom ascribed to the Founding Fathers is regularly reinforced by both politicians and judges with almost religious intensity. Secondly, the legal and constitutional battles fought from the 1950s to the late 1960s still loom large in the American mind. From 1953 to 1969, Earl Warren was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and was seen by many Conservatives as a Liberal interventionist. There was a view held by many on the Republican side that his court had led America away from its origins. In particular, he was never forgiven by a large cohort, especially in the South, for the court's decision in Brown v Board of Education, the case which forced desegregation in schools. Billboards like this were spread across many of the southern states. Originalism was seen as the means of winding back the constitutional clock. Some of the proponents, like Robert Bork, proposed that the interpretation was to be controlled by the original intent of the framers of the Constitution. But Scalia moved from that. For him, originalism was the idea that the meaning of a constitution is fixed at the time it is adopted, and it cannot be changed through judicial interpretation. 
By this approach, he sought to determine the meaning of an amendment by consulting dictionaries of the era and other founding documents. Thus, the Second Amendment means what it meant when it was adopted in 1791, and the Fourteenth Amendment means what it meant when it was adopted in 1868. For him, the Constitution means what it meant to intelligent and informed people at the relevant time. He said, What I look for in the Constitution is precisely what I look for in a statute, the original meaning of the text, not what the original draftsman intended. Unsurprisingly, this view did not appeal to the Liberal judges on the court. Justice William Brennan described it as arrogance cloaked as humility. It was also inconsistent with a view long held by many and best expressed by Judge Learned Hand, probably one of the best judges never to be appointed to the Supreme Court, when he said, It is one of the surest indexes of a mature and developed jurisprudence not to make a fortress out of a dictionary but to remember that statutes always have some purpose or object to accomplish, whose sympathetic and imaginative discovery is the surest guide to their meaning. Scalia said more than once that the Constitution was dead. In this film, he explains what he meant by that. Stanton and Scalia, quote, the Constitution that I interpret and apply is not living, but dead, close quote. Explain that one. Much of the um, harm that has been done in recent years by uh, activist constitutional interpretation is made possible by a theory which says that unlike an ordinary law, which doesn't change. It means what it meant when it was enacted, and will always mean that. Unlike that, the Constitution changes from decade to decade to comport with, and this is a phrase we use in our Eighth Amendment jurisprudence, we, the court does, to comport with, quote, the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. In other words, we have a morphing constitution. And, of course, it's up to the court to decide when it morphs and how it morphs. Uh, That's generally paraded as the, quote, living constitution. And, unfortunately, um, uh, that philosophy has made enormous headway, not only uh, with lawyers and judges, but even with the John Q. public. The book that was the subject of that interview, Reading Law, contains his views on textualism and originalism and transformed into canons of interpretation. But even in that book, his views are challenged. Chief Judge Frank Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit said this in the foreword he wrote to that book. When the original meaning is lost to the passage of time, or when it was never really there but must be invented. The justification for judges having the last word evaporates. The alternative is choice through the Constitution's principal means of decision, a vote among elected representatives who can be thrown out if their choices are not popular.
there are many groups which supported Scalia's view. One of the most influential and relevant to this discussion was the National Rifle Association. It was formed in 1871 by militia and army veterans to train men to shoot safely and accurately. It did not object to the National Firearms Act of 1934, the subject of the decision in Miller, nor to other similar legislation. Its views did not change much until 1976, when a group who opposed any gun laws voted out the old guard. From that time, in ever-increasing volume, it advanced the argument that the Second Amendment protected the right of every American to own and use firearms. Its position was not shared by everybody on the conservative side of politics. President Nixon had replaced Chief Justice Earl Warren with Warren Burger, and Burger had been a staunch critic of the Warren Court, but he did not agree with the NRA. This is what he said about their Second Amendment argument. If I were writing the Bill of Rights now, there wouldn't be any such thing as the Second Amendment. Which says? That uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of the state, the people's rights to bear arms. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. The campaign by the NRA was well-funded and well-directed. It exercised considerable political power through, the endorse, or sorry, through its endorsements of sympathetic members of Congress. It was in that atmosphere that Richard Heller challenged a District of Columbia law which banned handgun possession and made it a crime to carry an unregistered firearm. He wanted to own a handgun for protection in his own home. Heller won in the circuit court and the District of Columbia appealed to the Supreme Court. Justice Scalia was assigned the majority of opinion and he used it to create what he has described as his legacy opinion, insofar as it is the best example of the technique of constitutional interpretation which I favour, I think it is the most complete originalist opinion that I've ever written. In District of Columbia and Heller, the court ruled by five to four that the DC law violated the Second Amendment. Justice Scalia's opinion runs to 60 pages, most of which is devoted to an historical analysis of the Second Amendment. Dissenting opinions were delivered by Justices Stevens and Breyer. Seventy years before Heller, in United States and Miller, the court had only dipped a small cup into the well of history leading to the Second Amendment. Scalia lowered a bucket, a large bucket, and drew up what he wanted to prove his case. He delved into all manner of historical references, starting with the English Bill of Rights in 1689 and the glosses placed on it by William Blackstone in 1760. This is how he described his exploration of history in another interview he gave in 2012. The Second Amendment did not say that the people shall have the right to keep and bear arms, or even that, quote, the government shall not prevent the people from keeping and bearing arms, but rather that 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This triggered historical inquiry. So how does the history inform the reading of what strikes a layman like me as a very tricky text, that prefatory clause, comma? Well, that that passage you read triggered, uh, I said it triggered uh, uh, historical inquiry because um, the Second Amendment refers to it as though it it were a pre-existing right. It didn't say the people shall have the right or even the government shall not take away arms, but rather the right of the people to keep and bear as though it was a pre-existing right. And that triggered historical inquiry that takes you back to the English Bill of Rights, which sure enough contained the right to keep and bear arms. As for the prologue, are they going to know what the prologue is? You know, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, Again, if you studied history, what's the connection between not taking away arms, the the right of the people to keep and bear arms, and the militia? It seems very strange. But historical inquiry shows you what the connection is. The way the Stuart kings, the Catholic kings, uh, destroyed the militia, which was supposed to be all of the... uh, uh, male citizens uh, trained to arms. The way they destroyed the militia was not to, by abolishing it, they just took away the arms of all of those who opposed uh, the Catholic kings. And, and so there is a connection. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of a free state, a militia consisting of all of uh, the body of the citizenry, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It makes thorough sense if you understand the history. Well, the connection he saw between Section 7 of the English Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment may be more apparent than real. The English Bill of Rights and the US Bill of Rights are different creatures. The English Bill of Rights was largely concerned with recognising limits on executive authority. William and Mary had accepted these as conditions for being offered the Crown after the deemed abdication of James II. Apart from Crown prerogatives, the English text took for example, took for granted rather, increased legislative power. In contrast, the United States Bill of Rights was concerned with marking out limits to federal legislative authority. Scalia's view of history, grammar and the world led him to differ markedly from the decision in Miller. He disagreed with the view that the preamble modified the second part of the amendment. McReynolds had interpreted the first clause as modifying the second one, providing the reason for the right to own a gun. Scalia said that the prefatory clause was not there to limit, but to clarify the rest of the sentence. The former, he says, does not limit the latter grammatically, but rather announces a purpose. He held that an individual had a right to keep and bear arms and did not attempt to define the limits of that right. But in what is regarded by many observers as the price he paid for obtaining the vote of Justice Kennedy, he also said, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms 
in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. In a footnote to his opinion, he says that those measures are only examples of presumptively lawful regulation. As another part of his examination of the particular law being challenged, he noted that the inherent right of self-defence had been central to the Second Amendment right. But in many of the critiques of his reasoning, it is frequently pointed out that there was no justification for that assertion. The Second Amendment was driven largely by the fear held by many of the founding fathers that state militias could be disarmed by a central government. More importantly, and inconsistently with his profession of original meaning, nowhere in his opinion does he answer the question, did the general public in 1791 read the amendment as he did? Was their understanding that the amendment protected a right to retain all weapons then used rather than those used by the militia? His reasoning, while appeasing many in the gun rights lobby, infuriated some on the conservative side. Judge Richard Posner wrote, that Scalia's opinion employed faux originalism and he derided his historical analysis. Judges are not competent historians. A dubious form of historical analysis endorsed, however, by some originalists is speculation about how people who lived long ago would have answered a question that had never been put to them and could not have been because it concerned a practice or concept or technology that did not exist and was not foreseen during their lifetime. He went further, likening this kind of argument to motivated reasoning, the form of cognitive delusion that consists of credulous acceptance of the evidence that supports a preconception and peremptory rejection of evidence that contradicts it. Some fierce criticism came from Nelson Lund, now, he is the Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment, a very precise chair, <laughs> at George Mason Law School, which has been renamed Antonin Scalia School of Law. The chair he occupies is endowed by the NRA. He approved of the decision, but not the reasoning. The Heller case gave the Supreme Court and Justice Scalia in particular a rare opportunity to show why originalism deserves to be taken seriously. Unfortunately, the court's performance is so transparently defective that it's quite possible that this decision will become Exhibit A when people seek to discredit originalism as an interpretive method. Two years after Heller, the Supreme Court confirmed that the Second Amendment applied not only to the District of Columbia, but also to each of the states. But since then, the court has been remarkably quiet. It has refused many opportunities to consider challenges to other gun laws. And this has had the effect of allowing lower courts to allow legislation which has, in some places, increased gun control. In February of this year, this practice raised the ire of Justice Clarence Thomas, who in dissenting from a decision to refuse certiorari, said that the court had some rights it favoured, abortion, speech, 
unreasonable search, and some it didn't. He said, the right to keep and bear arms is apparently this court's constitutional orphan, and the lower courts seem to have gotten the message. After Heller, Scalia continued his crusade to rein in what he saw as the unprincipled methods of interpretation employed by others on the court, and his inclination to attack those who disagree with him flowered again in King and Burwell. This was one of the cases which considered the validity of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, as it was sometimes called. The Act was upheld by six to three on various grounds. Scalia dissented and was joined by Justices Thomas and Alito. In that court, it sometimes occurs when a justice publishes an opinion that he or she will take the opportunity to emphasise a dissent by making some public remarks. He did so at length in this case. I'll ask you to listen to how he finished. Perhaps the Affordable Care Act will attain the enduring status of the Social Security Act or the Taft-Hartley Act. Perhaps not. But this Court's two decisions concerning the Act will surely be remembered through the years. The interpretive somersaults they have performed will remain as astounding precedent, cited by lawyers to confuse our jurisprudence. And these two cases will publish forever the discouraging truth that the Supreme Court of the United States favors some laws over others, and that it is prepared to sacrifice all the usual interpretive principles, that it is prepared to do whatever it takes to uphold and, and assist its favorites. I respectfully dissent. <laughs> Once again, he attacked the motives and integrity of his fellow judges. In his last years, he became even more abrasive, especially when discussing the cases in which he had sat. He gave many public speeches, and he had no qualms about being blunt when challenged. Frequently answering concerns about the decision in Bush and Gore with the simple admonition, get over it. Scalia had never been afraid to be as provocative during argument as he was in writing. One of the last cases he heard was Fisher and the University of Texas, in which that university's admissions policies and their effect on racial groups were considered. During argument, Scalia questioned whether black students admitted to top-tier schools suffer because the courses are too difficult. This is an excerpt of what he said. Too fast for 
this court, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not impressed by the fact that, that the University of Texas may have fewer, maybe it ought to have fewer, and maybe some, you know, when you take more, the number of blacks, really competent blacks admitted to lesser schools, turns out to be less. And, and uh, I don't think it, it, it stands to reason that it's a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible. Not surprisingly, this evoked criticism from many quarters. <laughs> the argument in Fisher was heard on the 9th of December 2015. As I've said, it was one of the last cases he heard. Justice Scalia died on the 13th of February 2016. As so often seems to be the case these days, especially in the United States, there were some wild rumours and conspiracy theories about the cause of death, but there was nothing to them. He was 79, he had coronary artery disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and high blood pressure, amongst other ailments. Only three days before his death, he had seen his doctor for a rotator cuff injury, but was considered too weak to undergo surgery. Antonin Scalia was a voice, a most powerful voice, for those conservatives who still railed against the decisions of the Warren Court and the social changes which followed. But he was an inconsistent originalist, applying his theory as and when it suited him. In Heller, he used it to convert a right of the people to bear arms into a right of each individual. Apart from his decision in Heller, what is his legacy? Well, it is too early to say. Much will depend at least upon the composition of the Supreme Court over the next decade. But at least one conclusion can be ventured. Scalia was an accomplished speaker and a persuasive writer. He used those skills to attack his opponents, often through a dissenting opinion, often in a way which went beyond a disagreement over different viewpoints. He lambasted the judges who differed from him and in doing so diminished the legitimacy of the court itself. No one doubted his exceptional ability as a lawyer, but his inability to convince his fellow justices of the rightness of his own views led him to repeated and damaging condemnation of the very institution of which he professed to be proud. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Selden Society Lecture Series podcast. Please consider leaving a rating or review. We'd appreciate your constructive feedback. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast series to have future lectures added to your podcast feed. A video of the lecture and a copy of the paper are available on the Supreme Court Library Queensland website and links are provided in the podcast notes. Thanks for listening.